I know that I know nothing. Socrates was 71 when he drank the hemlock after spending some time with his students, Plato actually being among them. It was impressed upon him by the ancient state of Athens in 399 BC to die for the crime of leading Athens' youthful population astray. Being true to his own philosophies, he drank the poison and died willingly for the state he was subservient to. Welcome to Under the Sun. Good evening, my fellow Americans. The battle bronze is over. From the special theory of relativity. Weighed in the light of a broader consideration. Until we have first proven acceptable to ourselves. Resting securely upon the mountain of eternal truth. Aggressive conduct, if allowed to go unchecked and unchallenged, ultimately leads to war. Persuasion through speeches and books is too often discarded for disruptive demonstrations aimed at bludgeoning the unconvinced into action. The battle of Britain is about to begin. To transform the history of man. Well, welcome to the Under the Sun podcast with Tom Markwell. I'm Tom, and I'm happy to be here in studio at IndiePod Labs, and I look forward to tickling your ear holes and hopefully enhancing your day. Uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, today we're diving into what Under the Sun is, and to do so, we're going to be exploring one of my favorite subjects, philosophy, namely Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which really when you think about it is actually Socrates allegory of the cave as told by Plato. Plato wrote about it in his famed work The Republic and so Plato gets the majority of the credit for this allegory but we can't really know for certain who originally came up with it. Much like the allegory we'll be diving into today my goal is to get outside of the cave. Uh, we're going to explore everything possible bringing truth back into the mainstream, and hopefully those who hear what I have to say don't kill the messenger. Or, you know, if that doesn't make sense, uh, that'll make sense here in a little bit. Socrates taught a great deal during his lifetime. Of his students, few have the same name recognition as Plato, Xenophon, Aristophanes. They're up there in their own rights, but you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who actually knows Glaucon, who was Plato's brother, or any of the others who were uh, following Socrates around. Unless you've studied the foundations of Western philosophy or how Western society developed from a sociological or political perspective, or even have studied ancient history, you may not know the significance of Socrates' teachings and later Plato's teachings and how they have served to develop our Western society and the world that we enjoy today. The allegory of the cave is well known, but it might be an often overlooked allegorical summation of humanity in general. From the onset of human consciousness, our species has constantly searched out the shadows to understand and comprehend the universe and the world around us. How much of our current understanding is flawed? We can never be 100% certain that everything we've been taught, everything we've picked up along the way, is the actual truth of the matter. We're influenced by social media, national news networks, Religious organizations, political parties, and our known immediate spheres of influence, our, our family, our friends, our co-workers, neighbors, and, and the list goes on. But before we get too off the rails, let's dive into our subject matter for today. 
What is the allegory of the cave? Where did it come from? And how is it applicable today? What can we actually use from it today in our daily lives? Well, before we can answer those questions I just asked, it would be best if we knew a little bit about the man who was responsible for it and the world in which he lived. Now, we're not going to dive into Plato today, um, since Socrates is sort of the main character of this theme. We're going to be looking at Socrates. So according to Britannica, Socrates was born the son of a Greek sculptor in 470 B.C., uh, he was uh, born in the city-state of Athens, Greece, and he remained there pretty much his entire life until he died in 399 BC. Now, Greece was in turmoil when Socrates came into the world. Athens was in ruin due to the ongoing Peloponnesian War that was taking place when he was just a wee little baby boy. You may remember stories or have seen movies or uh, seen referenced in other uh, historical dramas, the Battle of Plataea, and the historic clashes between the great Persian Empire in which General Mardonius was routed by the Greeks under Pausanias, which I, I just have to clarify, I'm going to butcher a lot of these names, but I'm going to say them as confidently as I can in the hopes that maybe I'll get it right, but just know I'm probably mispronouncing these, so if you want to go try to find out what these actual folks' names sound like, well, you might, you might want to Google that. But anyway, uh, Mardona, Mardonius was routed by the Greeks under Pausanias, who's actually the nephew of Gerard Butler. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, that's wrong. I meant uh, Leonidas, um, the former Spartan king. Um, <laughs> of course, uh, Gerard Butler, famous actor who played Leonidas in the movie 300, Many of you have probably seen that movie. It is a, a guilty pleasure of mine to turn that on and just enjoy the the very uh, brutal aspect of ancient warfare, uh, which is, I guess, enjoyable not, might not be the right word, but it is uh, enthralling to, to witness our modern interpretation of what that might have looked like. The Greeks also had just defeated the Persian Empire at sea obliterating the Persian fleet and going on to reclaim the Greek homeland in battle after battle, uh, ultimately ending the Persian expansion efforts in the West. So this was an era in which you have this little city-state of Athens that has partnered up with Sparta and partnered up with um, the, the Greek city-states that surrounded them who were traditionally always fighting and warring amongst one another, but you had this huge threat, the Persian Empire, that was coming in and looking for land and water. Earth and water was always the, the main thing that the Persian kings would always ask for, from Darius on to, to those who surpass him in, in, in his lineage. The world Socrates arose within was one of chaos. Even after the Peloponnesian Wars, Athens and Sparta still had a lot of cleaning up to do on, on the Grecian homeland. Many of the Greek city-states had aligned themselves with the Persian Empire during the Peloponnesian Wars, and now uh, Athens and Sparta, being the two main powerhouses on the Greek mainland, teamed up to punish these city-states and ensuring that proper Grecian rule was established in Greece. This was the age of the Delinian League, a coalition of Greek city-states fighting against tyranny from the eastern empires of Asia Minor and Persia. 
This was the time of Themistocles, the, the, the Greek hero, as many others who were, who were beginning to come into their own, and things were really beginning to take off for the Greeks as they were beginning to unite and work together, not as just separate individual city-states, although that would still persist uh, through Socrates' lifetime, but as a collective of this Delinian League where it was much more interconnected. There was uh, The world was a lot bigger than just Athens was when Socrates was born. It was still extraordinarily chaotic, extraordinarily bloody, but you were able to get a lot of the Eastern sciences and the developments that were taking place in the Persian Empire from mathematics to everything else. You had all of this knowledge that was also available as well. So that in and of itself, influenced the Grecian city-states unlike anything they had ever seen before. In the meantime, just to give you a kind of a, a, a scale of what else was going on, um, the Roman civilization was really just starting to take off. The Romans had just gotten their feet underneath them and were getting ready to begin their battles against the Etruscans and begin taking over the Italian peninsula there. So this was a really, really long time ago. I mean, this was, you know, 470 BC all the way up to 450 BC or so in his early adolescence and becoming, uh, you know, a young man. This was when Socrates was seeing the world around him and beginning to formulate his ideas that would later become some of the founding principles of Western society in general. The Greek poet Pindar created some of his greatest poetry, Polygnatus, yeah, Polygnatus, that's the word. See, these, these Greek names are just crazy. Anyway, he was from Thassos, and he was beginning his work as well. Some really great art and some things that we can, we can look back on. Uh, politically, artistically, philosophically, scientifically, the known world was changing, and Socrates was a witness to all of it. Eventually, you know, Socrates, in determining, hey, what are you going to be when you grow up, little Socrates? Well, I'm going to be a philosopher. Um, he chose that route in his life, and his life and his character and thought exerted a profound influence on our Western lifestyle as a whole. So if we, if we take the roots of what we have in the West and we follow them back to the very stump of the tree, Socrates is there along with, well, along with many others, but Socrates is one of those core branches that really have influenced the West in a way that, you know, is, is irreversible at this point. Socrates became popular for his particular style of philosophy as well. Often he practicing in the streets of Athens where he would openly question Athenians, typically his young followers, uh, to the point of embarrassing individuals in front of the crowd that he would amass before him. He, it was his way of uh, asking these probing question and answer style, this examination on a number of topics. Um, when Socrates really began to come into his own and, and really his, his uh, philosophical journey began to really take off and he began to amass a following of the youth within Athens, Greece, Athens had become the center of learning with different philosophies and different philosophers, you know, all touting their own individual thoughts and ideas of what are the heavens, what are the earth, what is our place as human beings, what is, what is good, what is right, what is just, what is wrong, how do we define all of these things, and really kind of diving 
into the into the meta of what humans experience in their day-to-day lives. And these philosophers taught rhetoric, astronomy, cosmology, geometry, and a whole lot of different lofty topics. So I'm not an expert on many, if any of them, um, but it's it's certainly fascinating to, to look back and see um, the very beginnings of how the West was made. You know, this isn't how the West was won. This is just, you know, how the West began to, to think. So Socrates was really known for his humility and his ultra-high commitment to seeking wisdom. He didn't claim to possess absolute knowledge, but rather saw himself as a gadfly, which would sting his fellow citizens into self-examination and the pursuit of truth. So a gadfly being um, some type of a stinging insect, I'm sure. I don't know. Maybe you can correct me on that. So he wasn't really in the mainstream. This was the guy who, um, you know, people told you, hey, don't listen to that guy. He, he must be a, some weird conspiracy theorist or something like that. But ultimately, you know, oh, well. Crap, he turned out to be right. He was the guy that um, your your teachers warned you about, that your mother wished that you wouldn't hang around with so much. He was that dude. He led a peculiar life as well, and, and he showed really little interest in material possessions or wealth. He didn't accumulate any wealth despite having, you know, a wife and children. He spent most of his time with his students out in the city in Athens, teaching and questioning and conversing with anyone who would listen and anyone who was willing to dive a little bit deeper. It is supposed that he actually utilized uh, his more affluent students for accommodating his daily needs of food and drink, sometimes possibly even housing. While there's limited information available about the specifics of his living arrangements, it is known that he had a place of residence where he lived. Uh, His wife's name was, oh my gosh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, Exenethipi. Exenthype. Yeah, I'm just going to go with exenthope and their children. But he likely spent most of his time on the street corners in Athens pursuing his quest for understanding, wisdom, and exploring the topics I mentioned before with his students. So now that we understand a little bit about you know Athens and what the situation was at Athens at the time when Socrates really began to teach, um, and we know a little bit more about Socrates in general, Let's read the allegory, and I'm going to do my best to keep it entertaining. And it, it's good to understand that this is a conversation between Socrates and Glaucon, Plato's brother, one of his students. And Plato, we can kind of assume that he's in he's in the background somewhere, probably listening, maybe taking some notes that he's going to expand on later in his work, The Republic, which is where we get this uh, final kind of drawn-out allegory first written down. So now let's let's set the stage a little bit for this conversation. So imagine that there is a slightly chubbier aged Greek man, probably nearly half naked, propped up against a fountain or a Corinthian column near a local market or, you know, some type of uh, downtown little area in Greece. Maybe he's at the Parthenon just, you know, kicking back. Uh, He's probably eating some dates, maybe drinking a little bit of wine. He was a fairly moderate man. Uh, he didn't take too much to eat or too much to drink. He 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 stayed pretty even keel throughout his life as he pursued wisdom. But um, he's there. He's surrounded by uh, a random group of young men. Some most of them have scraggly beards. Beards were in, and uh, everybody loved them. And most men had them if they could grow them. Uh, and some of these students are probably dressed really nice. Some are pretty modestly attired. 
for a modern comparison, I would look at it like a hobo who has been baking in the sun way too long. He's got unkempt beard, a glass of liquor in one hand, sitting in your downtown square with a handful of young men just chatting. Uh, all of this while people are shopping, walking by. Women and men are rushing their children to the opposite side of the street to keep them away from this crazed man who is influencing all of these young people. And there's probably some political leaders that are walking by like, man, we really got to do something about the homeless population in the city. It's getting a little out of hand. It might seem a little bit strange, but this is in a very real sense, what would become the model or at least the basis of our higher education system. Uh, we'll call it Socrates University, if you will, because um, his student, Plato, would actually go on to found the academy, which is, uh, it holds the historical significance as one of the earliest known institutions of higher education in the Western world. So I don't know if, if Plato followed necessarily the same methods as Socrates, he certainly used some Socratic questions and answer style of teaching. Um, but this is kind of where learning in some type of a formal place uh, really started to take off. And Plato actually founded the Academy in Athens, Greece, around 387 BC, open to anyone who had a mind to dive a little bit deeper into the topic of the day. Um, so if you were ever interested in getting a complimentary or free post-secondary education, I suggest that you build a time machine and go back to Athens and attend the academy. Uh, I hear it's wonderful in the spring. In the summer, um, it's a little warm. I would highly suggest you take some antibiotics, maybe some sunscreen. Uh, try to maybe take some iodine tablets to purify some water. Do your best not to die. Um, it's it's going to be tough, but you know what? Your education will be free. So now I'm going to attempt to read the allegory. I'm going to do the best I can. I've, I've simplified it a little bit in my notes, so hopefully it'll be a little easier for y'all to understand. It is written very, very long ago. Um, very little editing has been done. So bear with me, and I promise we are going to simplify it um, after it's all done because it, it is quite a lot. But let's get going. So Socrates begins the conversation. Behold! Man is living in an underground den, which has an open mouth. Well, well, hold on. Let me start over. Behold, human beings living in an underground den, which has an open mouth towards the light and reaching along the den. Here they have been from their childhood, and having their legs and necks chained so that they cannot move and can only see what is before them, being prevented from turning their heads around. Now above and behind them a fire is blazing at a distance, and between the fire and the prisoners there is a raised way, and if you will see a low wall along the way, like a screen which marionette players have in front of them, over which they show puppets. I see. <laughs> and do you see men passing along the wall carrying all sorts of vessels and statues and figures of animals made of wood and stone which appear over the wall? Some are talking and others are silent. You have shown me a strange thing, and these are strange prisoners. Like ourselves, and they see only their shadows, or the shadows of one another, which the fire throws on the opposite cave of the wall. The wall of the cave, that's what he said. True. How could they, how could they see anything but the shadows if they are never allowed to move their heads? 
and of the objects which are being carried, they would only see the shadows. Yes. And if they were able to converse with one another, would they not suppose that they were naming what was actually before them? Very true. And suppose further that the prison had an echo which came from the other side. Would they not be sure to fancy when one of the passerby spoke that the voice which they heard came from the passing shadow? No question. To them the truth would be literally nothing but shadows of the images. That is certain. And now look again and see what will naturally follow if the prisoners are released. At first, when any of them is liberated and compelled suddenly to stand up and turn his neck round and walk and look towards the light, he will suffer sharp pains. The glare will distress him, and he will be unable to see the realities, and then conceive someone saying to him that what he saw before was an illusion, but that now, when he is approaching nearer to being, and his eye is turning towards the more real existence, he has a clearer vision. What will be his reply? And you may further imagine that this instructor is pointing to the objects as they pass and requiring him to name them. Will he not be perplexed? Will he not fancy that the shadows which he formerly saw are truer than the objects that are now shown to him? Far truer. And if he is compelled to look straight at the light, will he not have pain in his eyes, which will make him turn away and take and take? Oh, wait. <laughs> I, re I read that wrong. Back up. <laughs> and if he is compelled to look straight at the light, will he not have a pain in his eyes, which will make him turn away to take and take in the objects of his vision which he can see and which he will conceive to be clearer than the than the things which now are being shown to him true and suppose once more that he is reluctantly dragged and held fast until he's forced into the presence of the sun himself is he not surely to be pained and irritated when he approaches the light his eyes will be dazzled he will not be able to see anything at all for what are now called realities. Not all in a moment. He will require to grow accustomed to the sight of the upper world. And first he will see the shadows best. Next he will see the reflections in the water, and then the objects themselves, and then he will gaze upon the light of the moon and the stars in the spangled heaven. And he will see the sky and the stars by night, better than the sun or the light of the sun by day certainly last of all he will be able to see the sun in his proper place and not in another and he will contemplate him as he is certainly he will then proceed to argue that this is he who gives the season in the years and this is the guardian of, of all things in the visible world and in a certain way the cause of all things which he and his fellows have been accustomed to behold? Clearly he would first see the sun and then the reason about him. And when he remembered his old habitation and the wisdom of the den and his fellow prisoners, do you not suppose that he would pity them? Certainly he would. And if they were in a habit of conferring honors among themselves... <laughs> and on those which were the quickest to observe the passing shadows and remark which of them went before and which followed after and which were together 
and who were there best able to draw conclusions as to the future, do you think that he would care for such honors and glories, or envy the possessors of them? Would he not say with Homer, Better is the poor servant of a poor master, and to endure anything rather than think that they do and live after their manner? Okay, anyway. So what he just said there is uh, that these prisoners that are in the cave are essentially congratulating themselves and praising one another for recognizing shadows and naming them and knowing which one is going to be next. And that kind of really sounds familiar. I mean, how many people can we look at today that are just flat out wrong, but they stay in these echo chambers where everyone else around them is agreeing with how wrong they are. None of them know how wrong they are because they don't see the truth. It, it, it's just... <laughs> It's just funny to think about, you know, all the, all the people who, who sing the praises of the idiots of the world. And those of us who, who, who can see the truth, you know, we, you know, you can fill in the blanks for yourselves who fits those categories. But man, oh man, this is, uh, this is as true today as it was then. Anyway, uh, let's continue with the conversation. Yes, I think he would rather suffer anything than entertain these false notions and live in this miserable manner. Imagine once more that a one oh wait a minute imagine once more such a one coming suddenly out of the sun to be replaced in his old situation would he not be certain to have his eyes full of darkness to be sure and if there were a contest and he had to compete in measuring the shadows with the prisoners who had never moved out of the den while his sight was still weak and before his eyes had become steady would he not look ridiculous Men would say of him that he, uh, that up he went and down he came without his eyes, and then it was better not to even think of ascending. And if anyone tried to loose another and lead him up the light, they would catch the offender and they would put him to death. <laughs> I mean, you think about the popular movements of the day. They are never wrong. You dare not stand up to them, even if you know you're right. So many news stories, YouTube videos showing the ignorant glorifying in their ignorance. And those with knowledge, uh, with the knowledge of truth, trying to convince the ignorant of truth only to be beaten, assaulted, verbally abused, ostracized, fired, and even worse. So beware of the crowds, y'all. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, cave dwellers that are still present amongst us. Let's continue with the allegory. No question, says Glaucon. This entire allegory you may now append, dear Glaucon. The prison house is the world of sight. The light of the fire is the sun. And you will not misapprehend me if you interpret the journey upwards to the ascent of the soul into the intellectual world according to my poor belief. But whether true or false, my opinion is that the world of knowledge, the idea of good, appears last of all and is seen only with an effort. And when seen is also inferred to be the universal author of all things beautiful and right, parent of light and lord of light in this visible world, and the immediate source of reason and truth in the intellectual, and that this is power upon which he who would act rationally, either in public or private life, must have his eyes fixed. So the good uh, referred to here by Socrates, and, and well, referred to by Plato technically, is um, an eternal and unchanging reality that transcends the physical world. Um, to the ancient Greeks, it, it, it 
And to philosophers of that time, it represented the highest form of knowledge and truth that served as the source of all other forms or ideals. The form of the good illuminates and gives purpose to all the other virtues and aspects of reality. And Socrates often spoke about the good as a central concept in his philosophical teachings. The precise nature of the form of the good is elusive and difficult to grasp. Uh, and Socrates suggested that it was beyond ordinary man's comprehension and could only be apprehended through the process of intellectual and philosophical contemplation. Attaining knowledge of the good was seen as the highest aim of philosophical inquiry and the path leading to a virtuous and fulfilling life. And that was kind of the ultimate goal of early philosophers was how do we live a virtuous and fulfilling life. So with that, let's take a break and you can hear from today's episode sponsor. Under the Sun is brought to you today by Foster and Friends with Brent Foster. Join host Brent Foster where he has peer-to-peer conversations with his friends from entrepreneurs and creators to corporate soldiers and humble leaders. There is often a lot to learn and laugh about when listening to the stories of others. Join Brent in honoring their lives, sharing their stories, and gathering new perspective. Check out episode number nine to get to know me a little better. Brent is an awesome man filled with a wealth of knowledge. And he's been in the financial world for a while now, so he is literally filled with a wealth of knowledge. So check out Foster and Friends on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen. Okay, so... Now that we're back from the uh, sponsorship, thank you to uh, our sponsors. Um, we appreciate you very, very much. Um, I hope that that was entertaining. I did my best to do an old Greek voice. Of course, I'm not good at a Greek accent, so I didn't really include that. I hope that that made sense. Ultimately, doesn't necessarily matter if any of that made sense. Hopefully it was entertaining because we're going to pick it apart a little bit now. Um, so let's unpack it here. You know, don't be worried if you found that confusing at all. You have to read ancient texts at least 20 times before it starts making any sense, uh, especially when dealing with philosophical thought, because not only are you dealing with ancient text, but you're also adding in a whole lot of brain-teasing ideas that are just, it's a lot different than what we think about in uh, 21st century terms. And there's always something new that will stand out each time that you pass over it. So it's really... It's really cool, you know, if you get a chance to go read The Republic or you have a chance to dive into some of these uh, older philosophical thought lines and, and some of the details. I, I, I highly suggest it. I think it's really cool. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of weird. So, you know, you don't have to. So this allegory, as I stated before, it was represented in Book 6 of Plato's Republic. And it is a symbolic representation of what would be known as Plato's theory of knowledge and the nature of reality. So we have a group of prisoners who have been chained inside of a cave since birth, and they're all facing a wall. And behind them is a fire that's blazing. And between the fire and the prisoners, there's a raised walkway, so they can't see anything that's going on behind them. All they can see is this wall that's in front of them, the flickering of the light. And on this walkway, people between the fire and the wall, you know, they're holding up. It's a puppet show is, is pretty much what it is. You know, if you have kids, you've probably you know, shined a flashlight on the wall and, and made hand puppets and done all of these fun things. And, and that's pretty much what the, what the cave represents. And, and that's the thing that you can visualize if you're struggling to find, you know, a way to do that. So the prisoners are 
unable to turn their heads and they can only see the shadows of the wall and they have no knowledge of the outside world. They have been chained there since their birth. That is the only thing they've ever known. So the shadows become their reality and they believe that the shadows are the only truth. It's, it's the only thing that they've ever been exposed to. It is their be all and end all. That's all that they've ever known. They have no idea that their state is abnormal or that they're even restricted. If you've been in chains all of your life, well, you've never felt freedom. You have nothing to compare that to. You're going to be perfectly comfortable right where you're at. And honestly, any in the state, anyone in this state would need a whole lot of professional and psychological guidance to overcome the trauma once they realized what freedom from the cave actually means and what they had been forced to endure. According to Plato, the prisoners in the cave represent ordinary people who are trapped in the world of appearances and sensory perceptions. They're relying on their sight, although their eyes are likely underdeveloped since they've only ever been able to see the darkness of the cave and the flickering of the shadows. They're not reaching their full potential. They're not utilizing all of their brain cells. They're just heads forward, straight looking at this wall. The cave itself represents the world around us and the realms of the senses, and the limited understanding derived from it. The shadows on the wall represent the illusions and the deceptive nature of our sensory experiences in the world. Plato suggests that the philosopher who seeks true knowledge and wisdom is like a prisoner who escapes from the cave and experiences the outside world for the first time. Initially, the philosopher is distorted and blinded by the sunlight represented in the realm of the forms or ideas, which Plato believes to be the ultimate reality. Often people uh, in this time would refer to the forms as being the realm of the small g gods, you know, from, from Zeus to Poseidon and everything in between, you know, that, that, was, that was where they dwelt. That's where all of these higher ideas and all of the orchestration of, of the world around us happens. And the forms are often utilized by ancient philosophers as a sort of plumb line uh, for humankind, and uh, that's where we get, you know, the development of the earliest forms of democracy and society. Your head of state, which represents the godhead. You have the the leadership class, which are the small g gods, and then you have, you know, the rest of society. And the ancients did their best to try to model their political structures after those perceived heavenly structures in the realms of the forms to try to obtain, you know, that next level of human development. They were modeling the earth after what they perceived as being the highest order of existence. That is to say, in heaven above, so too should it be on earth. So in the allegory, the philosopher prisoner escapes and he gets out of the cave and he gradually comes to understand the truth and gains knowledge of the forms, realizing that the shadows in the cave were mere reflections or, or imitations of true reality. The allegory conveys Plato's belief in the existence of higher reality beyond the physical world we perceive with our senses. It highlights the distinction between the world of appearances, which is the subject to change and it's subject to deception, and the world of the form, which rep of the forms, which represents an eternal and unchanging truths. Overall, the allegory of the cave serves as a metaphor for the journey from ignorance to enlightenment. And it emphasizes the importance of philosophical inquiry and the pursuit of knowledge to transcend the limitations of the material world and grasp on the true nature of reality. So how is Plato's allegory of the cave relevant today? Well, there's, there's actually several reasons. You know, it's not just a really cool story, bro. That's, that's really neat. Uh, I would hate to be one of those prisoners 
but then if I was a prisoner, I wouldn't even know it. So would I really hate it? You know, you can look at you can look at it in multiple different ways. From a philosophical standpoint, the allegory is a beautiful picture of someone who finds freedom. But really, one of the things that makes it relevant today is the the difference between perception and illusion. The allegory highlights the limitation of our senses. In today's world, we are bombarded with information, and we often rely on headlines and surface information. We make knee-jerk decisions all the time, and the allegory reminds us to question the nature of our knowledge and to seek out you know, what is actually real, what's actually going on. Let me read beyond the headlines here, and let's try to figure out what the issues are, and then we can attempt at that point to find the appropriate solutions for those issues. It also details man's search for truth. So the importance of critical thinking cannot be understated. Questioning and seeking knowledge beyond what is readily apparent in an era of misinformation and fake news and AI-generated content, the allegory encourages us to engage with intellectual inquiry, examine our own beliefs, and strive for a deeper understanding of the world around us and the world of the forms and everything else in between. The allegory also raises philosophical questions about the nature of reality itself. It prompts us to reflect on whether the physical world we perceive is the ultimate truth or is if there are underlying transcendent realities. The allegory underscores also a the transformative power of education in the pursuit of knowledge. It suggests that, you know, true enlightenment comes from breaking free from ignorance and obtaining a higher understanding of reality. In our modern education systems, the allegory serves as a reminder of the importance of cultivating critical thinking, intellectual curiosity, and a well-rounded education. The allegory can also be interpreted as a commentary on society and politics. It highlights the existence of social structures and the power dynamics that perpetuate false information and hinder our individual ability to discover the truth. It encourages us to question authority, challenge the status quo, and strive for a more just and enlightened society. Overall, Plato's allegory of the cave remains relevant today because it raises fundamental philosophical questions about knowledge, perception, truth, and the human condition. Its themes and insights continue to resonate with contemporary discussions in various fields, reminding us to engage in introspection, critical thinking, and the pursuit of wisdom. And this allegory is as much about freedom and the nature of freedom in my mind as it is about finding the truth in the world around us. Freedom yields experience, and experience yields knowledge, and knowledge, when it is applied, it produces wisdom. Imagine being forced from your own personal cave of quote-unquote reality. I mean, Galileo's most notable contribution to science was his support for the heliocentric model of our solar system proposed by Copernicus, which stated that the Earth and the other planets revolved around the sun. That challenged the prevailing uh, geocentric view of the Earth at the time, which said was literally that the Earth was the center of the universe and everything was rotating around us. Um... He proved what everyone knew was reality was wrong. In 1633, Galileo was summoned to Rome by the Inquisition. He was accused of heresy for his defending and the promotion of the heliocentric theory, and Galileo's trial resulted in, in him being found vehemently suspected of heresy and forced to recant his views. He was then placed under house arrest, which lasted until his death. I mean, not everybody likes it when the worldview is challenged. And like in the allegory we're going through the day, some messengers are arrested, others are killed, 
or otherwise silenced by the powers that be. It is as true today as it was in the earliest times of our human experience. We're all breaking out of caves, and some caves are just easier to escape than others. Like the prisoner's eyes, ours too will take some time to adjust, and by experiencing the world around us in the light of truth, I imagine we'll have a better understanding for what was causing all the shadows on the wall, the noises, and the reasons why we have all learned some lessons the hard way and been made better by that lesson. So how does this apply to Under the Sun? Well, it's my hope in this podcast to explore everything that is under the the physical sun, S-U-N, and under uh, the spiritual sun, you know, Jesus Christ, S-O-N. I want to explore everything that there is to explore in the world in the light of ultimate truth. So we're going to be looking at not only philosophy like we've done today, but also history, sociology, psychology, nature, religion, science, human nature, and literally everything that exists in the minds of man, the forms surrounding us, and the physical world around us. I imagine that this podcast is like Indiana Jones, but instead of going into caves looking for treasures and fighting injustices, Nazis and tyrants will be heading out of the cave in search of reality, and we'll also probably be fighting Nazis and tyrants along the way at some point too. Like I said previously, we're all in caves in which we feel secure, and we're generally satisfied with what we know and for what we feel is real. We like our echo chambers, and we go to our go-to news sources and our circle of friends, and I'm going to challenge myself and do my best to bring you the subject matter and rip it apart like a good philosopher until we find the good. You might find yourself enlightened, hopefully entertained, and ultimately challenged to think a little bit deeper. Iron sharpens iron, so let's get out of the cave together and go explore everything under the sun.